Coffee, right? I need more. Is that? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> there you go. So, Peyton Manning did a uh, series starting last year. Actually, this is the second season now called Peyton's Places. It's on ESPN Plus. And uh, he goes around the NFL and, and, and talks about historical and all kinds of stuff at the NFL. The stories are great. They're about 25 minutes long. Um, they're fantastic. One of the ones he did was called this. Blame General Custer for the Patriots dynasty. Okay? Of all things, and this actually means something to me, this is about kickers. Okay? I was a kicker. Uh, I, I kicked uh, in college. I was East, uh, Oklahoma and Eastern Michigan. I kicked a little bit in arena football um, and so forth and so on. So kicking was a big deal to me. And this episode was actually very cool for me because two things. Number one, it was about kicking. And number two, the second kicker he talked to was Rich Carlos, who was a barefoot place kicker. And I kicked barefoot in high school in my first two years of college. So it was a little bit of a tie-in there. But the reason they, they said this was just who knows who that dude is right there? Who's that dude? That's Adam Vinatieri. Adam Vinatieri is one of the greatest place kickers in NFL history. Adam Vinatieri's great-great-grandfather was a band leader for General Custer. And when Custer decided to go to the battle at Little Bighorn, he decided it was more important to have the horses from the band carry stuff than it was to carry the band. So General Custer doesn't take his great-great-grandfather. The battle of Little Bighorn happens. Everybody gets slaughtered. Adam Vinatieri's great-great-grandfather lives. Therefore, born, born, born. Adam Vinatieri's alive. Adam Vinatieri's the one that kicked the winning, the, the, the kick in the snow for the tuck game and the game-winning kick in the Super Bowl. And the Patriots went on to win seven Super Bowls. So hence you get, blame General Custer for the Patriots dynasty. See how that works? Okay. In a similar fashion, I'm going to do something, how the movie 300 led us to sola fide. Now, what is sola fide? Anybody? Latin. But what is it? Faith alone. So, in history, in Latin, they came up with the five solas. And basically, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, Solo, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola dea la gloria, to God be the glory alone. What era of history did these five come out from? What era of history? What do we, in church history, what do we call it? The what? Reformation. This came out of basically uh, from about 350 AD to the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church dominated church history. And their, and, and their, their ideas and their ways of viewing faith. In the 15, in the 1500s, who is kind of credited with being the father of the Reformation? Martin Luther. That's where you get the Lutheran church. Martin Luther comes around and comes up with a different idea of faith than what the Catholic church had been pro proclaiming for the last thousand years. And it was basically through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It no longer was your works. It now was what God has done for you, not what the church can do and what you can do for the church, basically, at this point. So this history came out of the five solas. Well, I want to get show you how we got to the idea of grace and faith alone through history. 
So we have this movie called 300. Now, I don't suggest, this, I'm, not, I'm not vouching for the movie. The movie's not necessarily church-friendly, let's just say that, in terms of it. But the story is a somewhat historical story of 300, from what, from what city-state in Greece were they from? Sparta. These, this is from Sparta, okay? This is city-state in Greece at the time. Who were they trying to, um, who were they fighting? What group was coming upon Greece at this time? What? The Persians, led by Xerxes, okay? And we actually get his, where do we find Xerxes in the Bible? Esther. And I'm not sure, I didn't literally look up whether it was the same Xerxes that Esther, because there was a couple Xerxes and Artaxerxes and all kinds of stuff in the Medo-Persian Empire. But Xerxes was part of the Medo. The Medo-Persian Empire was really the second great empire of the world. There were four. Who was the first? Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon became the first great empire of the world, really where the world was dominated the known world was dominated by one general people group, okay? The second one became the Medo-Persians because the Medo-Persians basically took over Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and even expanded that empire, right? So the Persians at this point were intruding upon the entire world, and so they started to intrude upon Greece. The problem with Greece at this time was Greece wasn't Greece, Right? Greece was this number of city states and organizations. So you use either Sparta or Athens, the Athenians, or Trojans from Troy. You know, those are those stories. So if you see the movie Troy or if you know the history of this stuff, all of these people groups, they were separate in Greece. They were each their own. It, it basically, it's not even like our states here. It'd be like us, Canada, whatever, but we were all each little people groups in each little area. And they warred against each other all the time. But here comes this big bad boy and the, and the Medo-Persian Empire and Xerxes, right? He comes trolling down. And, I mean, think about the amount of logistics it would take to bring an army all the way from Persia, basically Iran, across into the Mediterranean Ocean, and then all the way over to Greece. This is a massive, massive army and ordeal, and it's a big deal. The problem the Greek had, because they were all separated, is everybody was basically saying, you know what? We can't fight this. Each individual group couldn't fight this. They're not banded together. They don't have any real way to band together to fight this. So basically, a lot of, Greek, a lot of the Greek cultures and a lot of the people around just basically gave up. They saw the size of the army. They saw the size of the, of the navy. They just said, we're done. Well, 300 Spartans from Sparta, who were elite warriors, decided enough's enough. We're going to fight. So they fought and became legend in, in Greece because they died eventually, but their, but their heroic efforts were so great that the other city-states began to band together, began to do some things, and began to fight off the Persian army, okay? And it led to, in 330 BC, a guy named Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great banded everybody together, banded the Greek Empire together, defeated the Medo-Persians, and began to dominate the world in an even, even greater way than the Medo-Persians had and created the third great empire of the world, the Greek Empire. Okay, So that was, that's Alexander the Great. So we get from 300 to Greece banding together to Alexander the Great and conquering the world and basically becoming the next great superpower. 
One of the interesting things about Greek rule, and this is kind of important to Christianity, to a lot of things, Greek rule desired complete conformity to Greek culture everywhere that they were. Not only were they just going to rule you, they were going to actually bring you their culture. And at first they were going to nudge you, and then they were going to prompt you, then they were going to cancel you. Sorry, I didn't need to do that. Did I, did, did I do that? I did. I went there, right? I did. Okay. But eventually, they were going to persecute you to conform to their way of life. They brought their language. They brought their gods. What, what are the Greek gods? If I said, who's, who's the top Greek god it is? Zeus. There you go. We, we know these Greek gods. Why do we know them? Because these guys were so good at trying to dominate the world, they infected the entire world with their culture. Okay? As they got into Judea, this is an interesting point. The Jews, since the time of Moses, were always known as a group of people that took the cultures of the people around them and merged it into their own lives. God constantly punished them for it. They constantly were going after other gods. They constantly were going after other idols, right? All throughout the history, from Moses to the time of the Babylon captivity, all the Jews wanted to do was be like everybody else. And then the Babylonian captivity came on. God punished the culture. They, they almost ceased to be a nation. And God brought them back 70 years later. And in them bringing it back, they, the Jews really decided we're going to buckle down and be the people of God, or at least try to be the people of God that we need to be. And the proof of that is the fact that as this Greek culture came in with all of these different gods and all of these different idols, all these different ways, to the Jews' credit, they actually fought against this group that was actually trying to dominate them. By the time it gets around to a lot of the persecution, the persecution came from a dude called Antichus Epiphanes, right? Epiphanes, close. But Epiphanes, he, they, had, they now had four different rulers of the Greek kingdom, and Antiochus Epiphanes, there it is, Antiochus Epiphanes. That's how I say it, at least. He's coming down, and he actually came into Jerusalem, and the Jews were such a problem for him in bringing his culture in. He actually desecrated the temple at one point, didn't he? I think he actually sacrificed a pig on the temple in the temple at this time. That's how far his persecution of the Jews went, and the Jews kept fighting against him. All right. It led to an eventual revolt in 165 BC. Now, how many of you have, how many of you have seen a, um, let's say, I want to say a Catholic Bible, but a, 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 a Catholic Bible. What part, what's a part of the Catholic Bible that we don't really have in the Bibles that we have here? The Apocrypha. First, second Maccabees is in the Apocrypha. It's not that the, those stories weren't true. It's just the stories didn't have a real spiritual significant meaning. But Maccabees tells the story of this revolt. A guy, Maccabee, led this revolt, and that's why they call it Maccabees, and so they call it the Maccabean Rebellion. And they revolted against the Greeks, battled against them, and actually kind of won their independence from the Greek culture during this revolt. I say all of that, say this, during that particular time, several groups began to band together, and for good reason. 
right? If you're going to get into rebellion, just like the Greeks had to get into rebellion against the Medo-Persian Empire, you need to come together. You have to have some kind of unity in order to fight these kind of things. Because if we fight this individually, it's going to be a struggle, right? So two of those groups, one of them was called the Essenes, okay? How many of you have actually heard of the Essenes before? Smattering of hands, okay? The Essenes were known by their seclusionary nature. They wanted to be secluded, their own little group. They went off and lived by themselves. They were a hermit group. They didn't want to be associated with anybody else. Interestingly enough, the Dead Sea Scrolls came out of an Essene culture. They were so isolated and, and put together, they kept all of this stuff, and, they were, and nobody really knew about it until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s. And we got a lot of proofs from the text and things that we got out of the Dead Sea Scrolls because of this group. But it's a group that very few people have actually heard of. Now, when I say the second group, how many of you have actually heard of the Sadducees? Sadducees, yes. Everybody's heard of the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees came about, they became more of a political group in terms of those that were ruling. They, became, uh, they came out of a lot of the people that did the, uh, the temple and and. and, and, and put together the sacrifices and the things that happened at the temple. So the Sadducees were really involved in, in working how all, all the culture would be put together, whether it was political rule or whether it was temple uh, sacrificial rule. Those were the ruling class. One of the interesting things about them, they weren't real spiritual. Okay? I mean, if you can imagine, anytime you've ever seen the church try to get into some kind of political rule, you get a whole lot of rules and a whole lot of less spiritual because politics and religion really have a bad mix together. They don't go, they don't play together very well, right? And so in this case, the Sadducees became less spiritual and much more political in what they did. They didn't believe in the afterlife, so they didn't really believe that there were a lot of consequences of what you did here. They simply were, oh, yeah, there's God, he's good. We're going to do all this, but we're going to maintain a lot of power during this time. Yes, sir? They were sad, you see, because there was no, see, but I'm bummed. Okay, yes, thank you, Will. I was going I was actually debating on doing it, and you brought me to it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Okay? The, the other group began known as the Hasidim, or the priests and saints, but they became to be known as the Pharisees. How many of us have heard of Pharisees? Everybody's heard of Pharisees. So this, the Pharisees, came about, and we're going to talk about them in a second. But what I wanted, did want to ask is this: We often look at the Sadducees and the Pharisees poorly, right? They become butts of the joke. They become the example we use of what not to do. But were they necessarily a bad organization or bad people? Not necessarily. These groups came with very good intention. A lot of time, those intentions, the people that began these groups had it for the right reasons. Time, religion, ways in which they did things turned them into different groups of, that had things that began to uh, go south on them in terms of the way in which they lived life. The Pharisees came to know these basic things. One, man's moral accountability. They did believe that there was sin and that we were accountable to it. Okay? Is that a good thing? It's a good belief. There's nothing wrong with that. 
They believed in immortality. There was an afterlife. There was something that happened after we died. Again, is that a poor belief? No. There will be a resurrection after death. There are spirits beyond our dimension, so there are angels and demons. And there will be punishments for our behaviors. This group, the Pharisees, believed these things. Unfortunately, they did what most good intention, well-intentioned religions did. They externalized everything. Everything became about outward action. It's what you do, how you behave, the simple things, you know, did you cut your butter or did you spread your butter? I mean, you know, those are the kind of little things that they would get down to in terms of whether you were a good moral person for God or not. So here are some ideas or some external extremes that they went to. For a Pharisee in a Pharisee's environment, a woman could not look in the mirror on Sabbath. Why? Any guesses? I know a couple people know because I did this before. But why could a woman not look in a mirror on the Sabbath? The actual looking was not the work. Here it is. She might see a gray hair and pluck it. Seriously. The work was not looking in the mirror. The work was plucking your hair. You could swallow vinegar on Sabbath, but not gargle it. Do you know why? If you had some form of ailment, swallowing the vinegar was something that would help you. Gargling the vinegar was considered work. Okay? And here's a fun one. You could eat an egg laid on the Sabbath only if you did this one thing. What'd you say? Nope. Killed the hen who laid it. Because the hen worked on Sabbath. Okay. Now we find that those are funny, right? Yep. Those are those are those are those are kind of funny. But are there externalized practices that we've done in our church, in churches, right? I don't I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't hang out with people that do. We've externalized all kinds of behaviors in the in sake of. Well, Oh, I'm, I'm a Christian because I grew up in the church. I'm a Christian because my parents were a Christian. I'm a Christian because I'm a good person. Right? All We've done this. This is not nothing new to us. They took it to some pretty serious extremes. They, they, said, they like to sit in their little rabbinical circles and come up with all of this, this fun stuff. Can you imagine how fun that would be? Going, well, you know, if you look at I mean, they wrote all this down. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of uh, commentary on the law that come up with things like this. But the silly part is we've done the same thing. We just do it in a different way. Pharisees, the two things in the Pharisees, okay? Hope was in their heritage. Where was their heritage? Why did, what, what was the heritage of the Pharisees tied themselves to? Abraham. Abraham was it. We are sons of Abraham. Abraham's the man. Abraham was the one that started this all, and we are sons of Abraham, therefore we are of God. Yes. Life's good for the Pharisee. What about everybody else? 
not so much. You're not from Abraham, right? And their hope was then in their outward actions. They loved those two things. We're getting and going to get into John 3 and Nicodemus because the idea of faith and grace and non-externalized religion started really there in this conversation that Jesus had with this man. So John 3.1, Now there was a man from the Pharisees, a leader of the Jews, whose name was Nicodemus. A couple things about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was actually a Greek name given to the man. I think it was Ben... Would you, it, 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 it was a, a, a hyphenated Ben Judah or something that his actual name was. But he, he took on a Greek name because why? The Greek culture dominated the world. By the way, was the Greeks' domination of the world a good or bad thing? Yes. Great answer. Right? Certainly there was bad things that came about of it. But without the domination of the Greek culture you do not now have a conformity of language throughout the world. How did Christianity spread after Christ? Greek writings, texts, things, and when they went away from Jerusalem, which was Hebrew, they were actually able to communicate with multiple cultures at multiple, in multiple ways because everybody spoke and wrote Greek. So again, was Greek rule necessarily bad? No. God uses everything for his glory. So this poor Greek rule, this guy who comes in and slaughters a pig in the temple was actually used to spread Christianity throughout the entire world for years to come because of Greek. So he was known, and his name actually means ruler over the people. He was a leader of the Jews, a teacher. He was a man of note in the Jewish culture. In fact, uh, some people say he was like the fourth wealthiest person in Judea at the time. So this was, not a, this was not a man of small notoriety. This was a man of high notoriety in the culture in terms of his, his reputation, who he was, and what he did. Okay? He came to Jesus at night and told him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher because no one can form these signs you're doing unless... God is with them. So Nicodemus is doing something interesting here. He's recognizing, hey, Jesus, there's something different about you. You're doing something. There are great things happening. I'm here. People want to make a big deal saying, well, why did he come to it at night? And there's all kinds of theories of why uh, you know, Nicodemus came at night. Yeah, you know, one of them was he wanted to hide from. Um, one of them was, that was he was basically just trying to hide from the from the Pharisees, uh, the, his other group, so he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. That's a theory. It's a good theory. One theory was that Jesus was so busy during the day that you could really only get to him at night. The reality is, we really don't know why Nicodemus came to it at night. There's no commentary on that. There are speculation and guesses and all kinds of things, and people like to sit around in circles and discuss and probe and go over these certain things and. He came to him at night, guys. That's it. It wasn't, wasn't a big deal. Jesus replied to him, Truly, I tell you emphatically, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A couple things I'm going to point out. Number one, 
Truly, I tell you emphatically, what's, what's the most common way we've heard that since basically 16, six, was it, 16, 12? What's the term that we see in the English language for truly, I tell you emphatically? Verily, verily. The King James, we're going to the King James Bible here, right? And you would, you would hear this term, verily, verily. It gets translated many times, truly, truly. Okay, so, so, so as, as, as translations of the Bible have come down, people have said, well, verily is not a word that we actually use in our language anymore. I mean, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, Bill, you go out all the time saying, hey, verily I did this, right? You, you do it all the time. It's common for you. Yes. Now, so truly, truly is the term. This is the international standard version. I really like this version because it does a couple things with this verse. One of them is truly... I tell you emphatically, okay? Jesus had four different ways in which he was spoken of or he spoke. It was just Jesus said, and there was a quote of what he said. Jesus said, I tell you, and then he speaks. Jesus said, truly I tell you, or one verily, or just truly, right? And then there's the truly I tell you emphatically, verily, verily. Truly, truly. Now, it's common. Look at this. In level of importance, which is the least important? The top son. What would be the most important? The bottom one. Truly, I tell you emphatically. So as we get to this verse, Jesus replied to him, truly, I tell you emphatically. This is the highest rate of importance of, what, of words that Jesus actually said. He's saying... This is highly important in terms of what I'm about to tell you, okay? So just stressing the importance of what's being said. Unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what do we put, what do, what's the most common phrase that we use for born from above? Born again. Unless one, you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This term born again, actually, and there's, there's Greek letters and, and, and say, anothen has meanings. Again, all language has different meanings. Uh, interesting one. Um, the word set, S-E-T in the English language, okay? Set, right? It has the most functional definitions of any word in the dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary takes 60,000 words to define one, that single word of set. 60,000 words. There's 430 different possible connotations, context, and meaning of the word set. Okay? So same thing happens here, obviously, in Greek. Words have different meanings and different phraseology depending upon what. What's the biggest thing that determines the, the, the definition of a word? Context. So anathen, born again, can also mean from above, by analogy from the first, and by implication anew, from above again, from the beginning, very first, from the top. Okay? So truly, I tell you emphatically, unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Couple points here. Number one, where's the question? 
that, that Nicodemus asked? Did he ask a question here? Rabbi, I know that you come from above and you're doing this and unless God is with him. He didn't ask him a question. But Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you emphatically, that's part. So in this conversation, no question was asked. Jesus gives an answer. Now, did Nicodemus have a question? Did he have a question in his heart? Yeah. What question did he have in his heart? How is this possible? How am I going to achieve eternal life? That's the question in his heart. It was the question in the heart of the ruler, the, the young ruler that came to Jesus later, right? He said, how do I inherit eternal life? Same question here. Jesus just answered a question that wasn't actually asked by Nicodemus at the time. But again, Jesus knows the heart, right? And he says, unless you're born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now I ask you this. If Nicodemus' hope was in his heritage, and if his hope was in his outward actions, what about being born from above has anything to do with that? Nothing. Jesus just looked at a man who, for history, for time, for hundreds and thousands of years, basically, their group put hopes in the heritage, hopes in their outward actions, and Jesus just said, Unless you're born from above, unless you do something you can't do, do you, because do you have any control over being born? Any, any aspect, of, did you have any function of that whatsoever? Nothing. Unless you're born from above, meaning unless God did something miraculous, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He just told Nicodemus, your heritage and your behavior mean nothing. It's gone. Say this, the implication of God's economy. And this is really the beginning of an understanding that my thoughts, God's thoughts, are not your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far above anything you can imagine. Nicodemus thought he had it down. He thought he had it cold. It was, it was ready to go. I've, I've done everything. I've been everything. Jesus should be commending me for my Wonderful action as a Pharisee and as a law keeper and all of those things. Why am I not being commended here? And Jesus says, hey, you got nothing. You got, you got to have something else. Everything in this world that we value is worthless to God. The things that we do as humans, by human nature, by right, is almost the exact opposite of the things that God wants. We value power, wealth influence, making a name for ourselves, fame, right? I mean, it's the challenge of being up here. I'm going to look at you and say the challenge of being up here is part of my personality really likes being up and speaking to people. It's, I, I, was a teach, I taught with, uh, I was a corporate trainer for British Petroleum. This is a natural function of who I am. It's hard to get up here and do this without feeling some kind of, oh, look at me. I'm pretty cool. Okay. The truth is we cannot meet God's standard that he set. His economy is not meetable by us. And it's only grace that we have a relationship with him. Now the question becomes, could Nicodemus have actually seen this coming? 
Okay? Nicodemus saw it. His, his position, his acts all made, the, made, made him who he was. But in the Old Testament, because later on Jesus actually infers, you're a teacher of the law and you don't know these things? Right? He actually questions him on it. In the Old Testament, one of the passages, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? What's he speaking of here? Sacrifices, sacrifices. Bring all the sacrifices you want. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Shall I give you my firstborn baby as a sacrifice? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. This was in the scriptures. Humility before God, loving others, was far more important than all the sacrifices that they could possibly bring, all the behaviors they could possibly do. That's one example. Hosea 6.6, and I put two different versions of it, the NIV and the New Living Translation, because I kind of like both. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Or in a different way, I want you to show love and not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Know God, love others. Jesus started something that was old, but this is now new. Because all the religious leaders of up to this time says, no, it's who you are and it's what you do. And Jesus said, no, it's now an act of God, love God, and love others. Nicodemus' reaction was kind of interesting because I think he behaved. If we're questioned on our faith, these are the kind of silly questions that we ask. How can a person be born when he is old? He can't go back into his mother's room a second time and be born, can he? These are the kinds of questions that we ask as human beings. We get down to the silly. We get down to the mundane. What a silly response to an answer that he couldn't understand. Look at us. Look in our life. Are we externalizing different versions of our religions? Are we creating things that we think make us good and give us an attaboy on the back? Because at the end of the day, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's what God asks of us. Worship team can come up. That was a fun one to kind of put puzzle pieces together and go through. Um, We come, in many ways, sometimes communion 
has become an externalized version of religion. What, it, it, what its original intent was to bring people together, to fellowship, to break bread together, and then, then remember who Jesus was, has almost been trivialized to a cup and a piece of bread in our circles. And in other circles, it's been greatly magnified to being, this is the, quite literally the blood of Christ and the, and, the, and, the, and the flesh of Christ in some circles. And if you don't take these two things, you're, 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 you're not saved. This is the kind of stuff that we do all the time. This is the stuff the Pharisees did. This is the stuff the, the next generation of religious leaders did to the next generation of religious leaders did. We get to the Reformation, and things kind of clear up a little bit. And then, of course, over the 1800s and the 1900s, religion took back over again, and it became externalized versions of religion again. So as we come to the table, as we come to the bread and, 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 and the cup, This is our remembrance of the fact that Christ walked into Nicodemus and said, your acts and your heritage mean nothing. Only I mean something. I'm giving as a gift to you. This is by grace through faith alone. So when you come to the cup and you come come to to, 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 to the bread, remember Christ's sacrifice. Remember Walk humbly before God. This is a humble act in remembering what he's done for you, not what you're doing for him. Father, we love you. We praise you for your truth of grace, of mercy, of love. So much point is to it, and yet we often just turn our ears to it because... We want to know what the next step of things we need to do. Be with us as we remember the cup and remember the blood. And just as we fellowship together after this, and uh, just let us encourage one another and share with one another our burdens and our, and our joys. We love you and thank you for who you are in your son's name. Amen.